Hey everyone, after more than 15 years in the business, I finally got a book published. If you want to do me the biggest favor in the whole world, please head over to MikeyOp.com and buy a copy. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com, and the book is named Ardor, and it's about psychics and the history and future of the universe. I wrote it, and I think you'll love it. Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And uh, this week we have like a very close family friend who lives in the area, Marty Belaski. He's a former actor, comedian, and I know him because his wife, Geraldine, is best, best, best friends with my wife, Alana. And so Geraldine, for those of you who are fans, was on episode 24. She was the reality TV producer. So with that introduction, I'm now going to explain Marty's history, which is uh, he began acting professionally when he was 13 years old, and he landed the role of Crutchy in the Disney musical film Newsies. He was in commercials and made TV appearances on TV shows like The Wonder Years, Boston Legal, the movie Pearl Harbor, and A Mighty Wind. And this is the part where I'm like hooked as a Marty fan. He tried stand-up for the first time in 1998. And before he knew it, he was a regular on the stand-up scene. And then he ended up headlining at the biggest clubs in Los Angeles and throughout the country, where he caught the eye of the one, the only, now unfortunately deceased, Rodney Dangerfield, who handpicked him to be his opening act and later gave him starring roles in two of his films. And that was the longest introduction ever, but I don't care. Marty, how are you doing tonight? (laughs) Wow, I'm doing well, Mike. Thank you for that magnificent intro, I think that's the best one I've ever received. That's awesome, man. If this was like a comedy performance and I was the MC, I would be fired like within five minutes. But um, <laughs> let's just actually talk about the last part of your career and moving to Phoenix and stuff. So tell me about Hollywood and what it's like to live there and like living in Phoenix now. Yeah, night and day. Uh, two very, very different places, Los Angeles and Phoenix. Um, uh, but... What I will say is I love living in Phoenix now. You know, a lot has to do with where I am in my life and what I want. Um, Hollywood is a an amazing place uh, to live in when you're in your 20s and in your even your 30s, and you're uh, you've got lots of time and you've got lots of energy and you have curiosity and there's just so much to do uh, in Hollywood. It's it's a great place. To, to live in your, your 20s and 30s. But now that I'm married and I've got kids and I want a slower pace and I don't really care about going out to clubs and bars at night as much as I did when I was younger, um, Phoenix is just a, a great place I'm finding to raise my family. So, so happy that I, I moved out here and live in a great community, um, made a ton of, you know, I'm friends with like tons of neighbors, which does not happen in L.A., um, so that's really cool. Uh, but it's, it's been a, a great transition. So yeah, it's, it's great living out here. And the reason, you know, I, I was only able to move out to Phoenix with my family, honestly, because of COVID. I know, you know, COVID has been really difficult for a lot of people, um, caused a lot of, of pain and, and, and difficulty. But for me, somehow it, it actually ended up being a, a boon. Um, it enabled me to to move out to Phoenix. It enabled me to work remotely um, because otherwise, you know, prior to COVID, if you wanted to work for Hollywood, you had to live in L.A. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You've lived in L.A. That is where the entertainment industry epicenter is. 
and and you can't get out of that. But with COVID, everybody started working from home, and I'm like, I'm gonna I'm gonna do the same. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a weird uh, phenomenon. I think a lot of people made important, great shifts in their life, and unfortunately, a lot of people had terrible shifts occur or, you know, also made shifts that didn't end up feeling so great. But I, I do think it was like a weird time on earth for like people to make huge changes with kind of a, an excuse for it, which is cool. And that's pretty on topic for a podcast called Coffin Talk, which is somewhat metaphysical. <laughs> As we venture closer to that, that series of questions, I do want to get a little bit of the other part of your background together. So uh, for our audience to understand were you born in and around the LA Hollywood area and then you just happened to like try out for Newsies or did you move to Hollywood after that role or like how did that whole like part of your life uh, transpire? I am fortunate in some ways, I guess, to have been born in LA. So yeah, I was born and raised in Los Angeles. Um, however, my parents had absolutely nothing to do with the entertainment industry. My dad's a uh, physician. My mom was a homemaker, um, originally from Chicago they, we didn't have, I didn't have any friends in the entertainment industry growing up. Um, every, you know, everybody I knew their, their parents had normal jobs. Um, we just, we lived in the San Fernando Valley. Um, and while there are a lot of actors and actresses who, who live in the Valley, it's not necessarily the scene. Um, a lot of the, the hip hop happening people live uh, on the other side of the hill, as we say, in like the city. Um, for anywhere from Santa Monica through, you know, Los Feliz or, or even Eagle Park. But in the Valley, it's very suburban. That's where I grew up. Um, but I was always drawn to entertainment. My parents tell me from the time I was a baby, I liked performing, um, regardless of where I was. So I, I've, I've always had that natural instinct to perform. Um, I, I've always loved it. I love being, you know, a lot of, well, I shouldn't even say every performer, you know, loves being the center of attention, whether they, they admit or not. Um, and I love that feeling. So it sort of was just, it was natural that I would be drawn to, to doing acting. Um, I was just lucky that I was already in the location where you can do it. Um, so the long story short is, you know, I would do all the school plays and all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I tended to get, you know, the lead roles and stuff, not really thinking anything of it. It was just fun for me. Um, most of my friends were into sports. I was never a sports guy. I played the sports because that's what you do when you're a boy growing up in the 80s. Uh, but I just was never into it. I was drawn to, at that time, theater. And then one day, um, one of my friends' moms came up to my mom and was like, you know, Marty seems to be really into this acting thing. You should get him into an acting class. And my mom was like, what is, what is that? I don't know anything. You know, I, everything I did was like through my school. Um, so my mom looked into these acting classes and, and asked me if I wanted to do it. I said, yes. And signed me up. And it just so happened that the teacher of this first acting class that I attended used to be a professional actress herself. Um, I think she, she played, uh, oh man, now I can't even remember the name of her character. She was, she was like a, a reoccurring role on Happy Days back in the 70s. Um, and she was my acting teacher. Her name was Linda Goodfriend. And, um, and so I started doing the acting class and she saw something in me and she approached my parents and said, you know, Marty, Marty has a knack for this. He's got a talent. You should think about getting him into TV and movies. 
And again, not having come from a from you know a, a, a social circle where anybody did that, neither me or, nor my parents knew anything about what that involved. Um, but my parents asked me if that was something I was interested in. I was around twelve at the time. And I was like, wait a minute, you're telling me I could be in TV and in movies? Like, that's a thing? Yeah, sign me up. So I was 100% all in. Um, I'm Jewish. So my parents said, okay, but first you need to have your bar mitzvah. And then if you do, once you do your bar mitzvah, then we can talk about it. So I had my bar mitzvah. And literally like the week after my bar mitzvah, this, this acting teacher called my parents and said, okay, he's had his bar mitzvah. Let's get going. And that that was the start of my journey. Wow! And you at the beginning of that, you you were mentioning the feeling of acting and performing and liking that, and like you know, you refer to it as like the center of attention. Is there like a spirituality, like a spiritualness to like the quality of that? Like when you're in a moment and you're making people laugh, or you're succeeding in a performance, or you just kind of feel that vibe. Is is there any like spirituality to that to you? You know, I'm. I'll be honest. I'm not a very spiritual person. But there is like, there's an otherworldliness to it, um, where it's, 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 there's almost, I don't want to say there's an, you have an out of body experience, that that's not it so much, but you, there's an, there's definitely like a palpable feeling or energy about, about doing that and have, having all eyes on you and, and, um, people reacting instantly in a positive way to what you're doing and not just one person, but probably the, the same feeling an, an athlete has when they're, you know, making some great play or, um, or something like that. There, there definitely is some, something, something tangible that, that you feel. Um, and that, I think that's, you know, what, what keeps drawing that, that's what kept drawing me back to it and probably draws, you know, people back to those kinds of things. And so was that hard to walk away from, so to speak? Um, it, yes, that is, that's probably been the hardest part of walking away from this. Um, there are lots of things that I was happy to walk away from. The, the grind of it all, you know, you hear about, about the struggles and, and everything that auditioning and, and trying to get a part entails. That I do not miss at all. And then on the stand-up side, you know, it's the it's the traveling and being in all these these towns and doing you know your your act over and over again, um, and then just sort of waiting for that next level for for you to get a bump. You know, whether that's from opening act to feature, from feature to headliner. Um, you know, getting nowadays it's from what I understand, it's all about having a social media presence. So I can only imagine the stress that goes into trying building up a fan base through social media. I didn't have to deal with that um, in the early 2000s. Um, but yeah, so there are elements I don't miss, but the, but the one thing I do miss is sort of being in that spotlight, having all eyes on me, but not just having all eyes on me, because anybody can do anything and get a lot of attention, but it's, it's the appreciation and the enthusiasm for that, for that thing that you're doing. I'm so glad you, you phrased it like so precisely because that's really what I'm curious about is um, that phenomenon because I'm attracted to it. Um, I do it with like tons of projects and I 
and I receive it differently in different mediums that I do. And so that's kind of why I'm finding it interesting. And like one of the mediums I have never tried and I, I don't think I ever would, would be like stand up comedy. And it's my favorite thing to watch and appreciate. So, you know, I, I'm, if and when I persuade you to uh, hit up a local club here, I obviously <laughs> can't wait to see you and root for you. But with that said, what you refer to as the struggle is what I think everyone faces because we, you know, it's an economy and a pursuit of entertainment. And those are like two things that do coexist in our reality, but you know, it's, it's not always that way. Um, back to a statement you made. A lot of people say this, and I'm just curious if you could explain why you said it. Um, you just said you're not that spiritual of a guy. And like I said, a lot of people say that, but what do you mean when you say you're not that spiritual? Like what's this, what's the bar you're comparing yourself to? I guess when I think about spirituality, I think about a connection to things that you can't you can't see or touch or smell things that you can't use your senses to feel i mean i have obviously i've got emotions i have thoughts those aren't things that i can necessarily use my senses to um to identify but i guess i think of spirit spirituality as being like a connection with something outside of our our tangible world and so and maybe that's not the right definition of spirituality. I don't. I haven't looked into it that much. I don't necessarily feel like a connection to, to any. I don't know. I don't feel a connection to anything outside of what, what I can immediately sense or feel or or think about. Mm-hmm. And do you ever have that, or have you never had that? Hey, everybody. I just want to thank you so much for listening to the show. Our numbers keep growing and we have a premium package and it would really help us out if some of you loyal fans would head over there and sign up. You get bonus monthly podcasts, you get a book I wrote, and you also get extra essays and other content. So please head over to MikeyOp.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com and sign up today. I don't know that I ever have. Maybe I've like, when I was younger, I was yeah, and I guess this is the transition into talking about death and and all of that. But growing up, I was I was taught about religion, and I know you know I obviously understand that religion and spirituality are two different things. But you, I think your first introduction to spirituality is through religion, and I do think re- and religion is taught. So I was taught religion, um, and then through the the, the introduction to religion or the, the adoption of a religion, you're then sort of introduced to this concept of spirituality. And I think it starts with being connected to some greater force. Um, and then as you mature and you learn more, you know, then there's connections to other things and energies and, and spirits and your soul. And, you know, there, there, there are all these sort of buzzwords that go along with spirituality. And again, my apologies to anybody that, that, thinks they are very spiritual or feels very spiritual that if I'm not describing this properly, that's my understanding of it. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think you're describing a much more common experience than I think gets related. And, and you and I have talked about meditation before, and I know oh, that, yeah. that yeah. you meditate regularly. And I feel like that that's, that's almost an entree into spirituality. Like you can achieve spirituality through meditation and and you know again you and i have talked about this I'm like i wish i could meditate because then maybe i could achieve spirituality <laughs> but every time i've tried to meditate i'm just like this is ridiculous nothing is happening yeah and yet you are like a very patient person i would never have guessed you were an actor 
or a stand-up comic. I would have described you as a personable and funny person, which are like requisites for both careers. Yeah, I never, I never felt like the Hollywood type. Well, and actually, it's funny that you'd phrase it the way you did because our producer Alana has uh, the hot ticket access of a cell phone to cell phone connection with me, and so she has texted me her <laughs> dying questions as she listens to our interview. And uh, you just touched the notes of two of them, so I'm going to combine them. Which is she wanted to know if you've ever visualized or fantasized about something and then it came true. And her specific examples were, did you dream up the Disney role and did you dream about having a family? So you just mentioned kind of both. So did you visualize is the first question. And then the second question is, did the things you visualize come true? Um, I'll start with the the easy one for me, which is visualizing a family. Yes, I absolutely did. And I'm so happy that it came true because I have an amazing family and... It, they're they're they are the the center of my attention, um, and it's it's awesome. It's every it's everything I dreamed of. Um, I didn't, you know, I didn't ever dream of like being in a Disney movie. That that, that might have been way too specific for me. Uh, I was just when I got started, like I said, when I got started in acting when I was thirteen, I was just doing it because it was fun. It was my after school extracurricular activity. Most of my friends were, um, you know, were in their varsity or, or JV sports teams, um, which I was doing up until age 13. And then as soon as I had the opportunity to do the acting, then after school, I was going on auditions rather than going to, you know, football practice or basketball practice. Um, and my mom, my parents had really strict rules about uh, me being in the entertainment industry, um, I I had to maintain my grades. Um, if my grades slipped, they were taking me out. I had another really interesting rule that I've never heard at any other acting friends of mine say was my parents said I had to maintain my friendship. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> they wa- they wanted to make sure that I was always grounded um, and that I didn't just you know ditch my school friends and become some, you know, Hollywood kid actor. Um, so that was really important to them was that I had to maintain my school friendships. Uh, and if they saw that I was, that that was changing, they were going to pull me. So those two things, maintaining my grades and maintaining my school friendships were, were like the most important things to my parents because they didn't care. They really couldn't have cared less about, my my acting they were excited for me and they thought it was really cool and fun and a great experience but like a lot of act a lot of kid actors there out there are supporting their families or they are living out their parents dreams ah i see i wasn't doing either of those things so my parents just wanted it to be a good fun enjoyable rewarding experience but without any of the pressure that's funny. And I've heard multiple stand-up comedians say that actually, like very famous people like Bill Burr and Jerry Seinfeld, that like they have to persuade their parents to like come to the local show in town. Like they have to like really like get them to go. And they're like, do I really have to stay up late and come all the way down? And like, yeah, you're my kid. I saw you grow up. Yeah. My parents really enjoyed it. Like they, they were excited about my success. Um, so it's not like they were against it. They were like, this is really cool. And they were totally supportive, to- completely my parents came to lots of stand-up shows. They thought it was they, they would tell their friends about oh, it. That's so cool. Yeah, so they they liked it. Oh, that's awesome. They just didn't they just didn't want me to succumb to a lot of the the evils that you know they had heard about. Yeah, 
And actually, uh, it's a rough segue, but it will go into the standard question for the show, which is I, I plan on asking you, what do you think happens when you die? But tying it back into the spirituality part, as you answer that question, I just want you to think about, like, does your spirituality sense have anything to do with also what you predict happens when you specifically die? Oh, boy. Okay. So because I'm not very spiritual, I don't think anything happens. And I'm sure you've heard this from other guests. I think you die, and I think that's it. I, I really, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know that I believe in the soul. I don't know that I, I definitely don't think that I, I go to heaven or anything. And, and, you know, again, I'm, I am, uh, culturally Jewish, but I'm definitely not. And don't tell my, uh, my rabbi first cousin this. Um, <laughs> but like, I don't think I go to heaven or anything. I don't know. Uh, I've even gotten my, my wife, Jolie and I have gotten into some arguments because, she wants us to be buried in the Jewish cemetery. And I'm just like, uh, you can cremate me. I don't, it's fine. I'm dead. So I don't care. We have this so in common. <laughs> um, although recently, um, I, I heard uh, a quote from uh, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, where he was asked what he wants to happen when he dies. And he said he does want to be buried because he wants to become one with the earth again so that he can nourish nature which i think is pretty cool like um that 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 almost makes me i think uh change my mind so that if i if i can be buried and then and then nourish you know vegetation and and pass pass life on that that sounds pretty cool to me so jody might be happy to hear that how much did you care about humanity when you were young versus how much do you care about it now? And since you have children, how much does that play into your current philosophy of caring about humanity? You know, I think when you're young, you're taught to be kind and to respect others because it's, it's the right thing to do. And, you know, when you're young, you're learning, you're learning morals. I don't think you can really understand at a young age sort of the, the trickle down effect or the, the sort of, uh, ripple effect that 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 being good um, has, and 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 really understanding the, the humanity aspect of it. I think as you mature and you understand more about the world and the impact that various actions have, um, that that's when you grasp it more. So I would say when I was young, I didn't get it. Um, now that you know, I think about it. I and and I think I think more about it today than I did. 10 years ago, I think the fact that I, that I do have kids, I think about what the world's going to be like when they're older. Um, and I, I am concerned. Um, I, I like to think that, you know, throughout history, there have been lots of bad events and bad things. And we've been on, we've probably been on the brink of, you know, on the brink of extinction, maybe, maybe once or twice with like the plague in the, in the middle ages, stuff like that. But, um, we always kind of come back. So I'm hopeful that bad things might happen, but we'll, we'll still keep on trucking. The thing I liked the most that you said actually was just that we're taught to be nice to others, but then like this weird thing happens as you get older and you start to like actually be nice to others for the right reason and i, I that's gonna get me thinking for the rest of the night that's definitely a, a side effect a, a side effect um all right here's two quick questions for all those rodney dangerfield fans out there i have to ask you just one question about what it was like to know the guy because you actually knew him i mean you toured with him and stuff so what's the 
what's the nicest thing you want to say about Rodney Dangerfield? And then what's like the quirkiest or coolest, like inside baseball thing you're willing to say on air about him? Like, so it doesn't have to be mean, but just like something that you think people would be like, Oh wow, that's really interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, that one's easy, that, but honestly, the, the nicest thing I can say about him is that he was extraordinarily uh, generous and supportive of other entertainers. Um, and obviously myself included and, and really, I mean, going as far back as like, you know, his HBO comedy specials where, where he would have up and comers. I mean, he had Seinfeld and Roseanne and Jim Carrey and Tim Allen and all these, he had such a passion for comedy and for, and for specifically, uh, stand-up comics. And he took time to nurture and mentor those comedians that he had an interest in and as well. And even if he didn't, you know, specifically have an interest in mentoring a particular comedian, he always took time out of whatever he was doing to engage with them. Um, and I saw it just time and time and time again, as distinct from non-performers who he just did not care about at all. Um, <laughs> Like including his fans, unfortunately. But you know, if, if you're a fan and you came up to him, oh Ronnie, I love what you do. Can I have your? He really didn't want anything to do with you. But if you said to him, I'm a fan and I'm a stand-up comic, he he'd turn on a dime and be like, oh yeah, oh okay, tell me about what you do. You know, like that kind of thing. So he just loved, he loved other stand-ups, and and he really made an effort to help develop their careers. Which I just wow. thought, you know, you don't see a lot of famous stand-up comics doing that. You would never see, you know, every stand-up comic they have, they have their friends or they have the comics, the, the other comedians they think are funny, and they'll help, they'll help one or two guys along. But Rodney really made it, uh, made it a point to help support and develop uh, comics of all kinds. So I really respected that about him. That that was really cool. The way. <laughs> The weirdest thing about Roddy, he was an interesting dude. Uh, probably there's there's not much I can say that probably already hasn't been said about him by other people, uh, other comedians who who knew him. Um, but you know, the one thing that I that I just always come back to that was crazy is that, and this is when I knew I knew him in the very last years of his life. I mean, I think I met him when he was like 78, um, and I knew him un, un, until he passed away. Uh, but he he basically lived in a robe and nothing else, literally nothing else. So all he would wear all day and all night was a robe and and naked underneath. And he was an older dude, so he wouldn't always you know be totally aware of everything that was going on. And the robe would open up a lot, and you'd have to revert your eyes and be like, but you didn't want to be rude and be like, hey, Ronnie, can you close the robe? So you'd just be like, oh, my God, I don't want to see this right now, but what am I, what do I say? I can't, you know, I'm just an up-and-coming comic. He's Rodney Dangerfield, the greatest, you know, stand-up comedian of all time. I'm not going to be rude and say anything. And it was just, it made for the most awkward moments. And I remember one time in in particular, so after his shows in Vegas, um, we would all, when I say we, I mean me and the, and the feature performer, a guy named Harry Basil, who's an amazing comedian, 
such a nice guy. He now owns and manages a bunch of laugh factories um, in Vegas and Reno, et cetera. So, you know, we'd all go back to Rodney's oh, cool. dressing room after the show and hang out. Um, and those were some of the coolest moments of my life because it's just me and, and Harry and Rodney, and we're just literally hanging out in his green room for hours. Uh, and he would have like a buffet of food brought in every night from you wow. know the Vegas restaurants, like more food than we could possibly even think of consuming. You'd see just trays of like filet mignons and and lobster tail, and it's like there's four of us in the room. Literally, there'd be four or five people in the room, and we got you know food for fifty people, and this was every night. So we'd all be sitting around there just hanging out and he's in his robe with nothing underneath. And, you know, then he would occasionally, or, or I would invite or Harry would invite guests who were obviously very excited to come hang out and be with Rodney as well. But they would not know to expect Rodney basically wearing a robe that would oftentimes come undone. And so one time I invited, and I didn't even think about it, but I, my family uh, came to Vegas and I have, I have like at the time, I think I was 26. Um, I have a sister that is 10 years younger than me. So she came, she's 16. She brought her friend, you know, and they came backstage. And, and then at one point, I think, you know, his robe came undone. I was like, Oh my God, my 16 year, my 16 year old sister is scarred for life. It was, it was just, yeah. So that was one of the weirdest, most awkward things about hanging out with Rodney. But I think lots of other comedians have talked about it. I, I, I love it though. I absolutely love it. And it's uh, such a great way to kind of like summarize, like, like he's at the end of his career at the beginning and that's kind of how everything I need to know about it. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us your time. Um, I know it's late in the evening and you work all the time and uh, it was really, really nice of you to do this for us. Everyone, please check out Marty. And if you live in the Phoenix area, uh, stay tuned. I am going to convince this guy to get on stage. We live like 10 minutes from a club that he could definitely get on uh, just with his resume alone uh so anyway uh thank you for tuning in to coffin talk as always the best way to support the show and me is to head over to mikeyop.com that's m-i-k-e-y-o-p-p.com and just sign up for the free weekly email and for everyone listening thank you again for tuning in and we will see you soon